So farming has been a huge part of our history and culture for generations. But there's a part of the story that is so often left out of the popular lore, the history, the stories, and the contribution of black farmers. It is so important to understand this part of our heritage, not only to acknowledge the challenges and contribution, but also because it's had a profound effect on all of us, on our food systems, our health, our education, economics, and beyond. In today's conversation with Natalie Bazil, we dive into the history and stories, not just of the past, but of the present and returning farmers. Natalie holds an MA in Afro-American Studies from UCLA, is a graduate of Warren Wilson College's MFA program for writers. She's the author of the novel Queen Sugar, which, by the way, was adapted for television by writer-director Ava DuVernay and co-produced by Oprah Winfrey for OWN. And Natalie's stunning new anthology, We Are Each Other's Harvest, is filled with essays and poems and quotes and conversations and first-person stories that examine Black people's connection to the American land from emancipation to today, with a strong focus on what she calls the returning generation. It elevates the voices and stories of Black farmers and people of color, celebrating their perseverance and resilience while spotlighting the challenges they continue to face. This collection really helps all of us better understand the rich history and contribution of Black farmers. Plus, the book itself as a physical object is gorgeous. It's filled with these incredible images. Um, I spent hours just soaking it all in, even beyond diving into all the poems and stories and essays that were um, so insightful. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Your work is fascinating to me. Um, The fundamental idea that farming in the United States has been such a rich and profound part of the tradition of 
black people in this country, but it is woefully neglected, if not outright excluded, and sort of like the broader telling of the story of our national history is incredibly, um, it's heartbreaking, it's eye-opening, but can you share a bit about what brought you to want to dive a lot deeper into this question? Sure. Well, you know, I think it really goes back to my own experience of the narrative, right? The narrative that I grew up with. This idea that, you know, when I was a kid and I would watch television, you know, I was kind of aware of this idea of farming and the American farmer. And it was this very heroic, romantic story. And I can't say that as a kid, I was aware of the absence of Black people, but I remember kind of being swept up in that idea, right, about that this is something, this is a noble endeavor, this is something that's kind of part of the American identity. For whatever reason, I have always enjoyed, you know, my own kind of personal fantasy about farming and and having land and being on the land. And so as I kind of held that appreciation for just the story of farmers in general, what I started to notice, especially as I was working on my first novel, Queen Sugar, and would go to Louisiana and uh, look around at who was farming sugarcane, I was struck by how few Black farmers there were. And I thought, how can this be? You know, how can this be in, in a nation where Farming is, is an integral part of, of the narrative, right? It's, it's this integral part of how Americans think about themselves, this connection to the land. And yet, Black people are not part of that picture. And so I start. that was part of the reason I explored, you know, in, in Queen Sugar. It was just to say, this is not right. And I think at the same time, I started to learn about my family's connection to the land. And that had always kind of been part of our personal experience. I hadn't necessarily connected it to the larger question of farming, but I knew that especially on my mother's side, there was this deep appreciation for land and what that could mean for a family. And so all of those things, all of those questions and issues started to come together. And when I wrote Queen Sugar, and it was my chance to explore these ideas in fictional form, that's really when I I could see that this was, there was a story there that was important to tell. And then when I was given the opportunity to revisit those ideas for We Are Each Other's Harvest, um, I thought, you know, this time I want to speak to the real people. I don't want, I don't need to make up Mm -hmm. a story, right? And I want to try to capture this moment where African-American farmers, their presence on the landscape has been erased, it continues to be erased. And if we don't do something about that now, we will be erased from the history books and people won't have this understanding that Black people have this deep connection to the land. So it was, it's a long arc, but I feel like all of these smaller moments were pointing me in the direction of writing this book and thinking about these ideas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's so powerful. You know, for for you, it sounds like part of it is personal. Part of it is just a 
a deep fascination and almost call to explore the, the broader narrative and the history around it. You know, the, the notion that um, I think the numbers you shared were something like a million, at, at one point, something like a million black people were farmers, owned yeah. the land and worked the land that, that they were on. And now that number has dropped down to around 45, 50,000 people and something like uh, 14 million acres of land have been lost. Yeah. I'm curious what's behind that. You know, I know you write about this and you've done so much research and, and I know it's not an easy answer. I know it's not just one thing, mm-hmm. but this is something that's been going on for, you know, it, it has been a process that has been evolving over generations. Absolutely. Well, you know, there are really two major factors that contribute to this dramatic land loss for African-American people, black people in this country. The first uh, and probably the most insidious is the role that the USDA has played in disenfranchising black people since the early you know, 1900s. You're right. By 1920, they say, there were about 925,000 black farmers in this country, almost a million farmers. Not all owned the land, but many did. But there were black people who were engaged in agriculture, either owning land or, or renting land. And that accounted for, on the ownership side, about 14% of all the arable farmland in this country was owned by black people. The USDA, which is a government agency designed and created to assist the American farmer, that agency has had everything to do with the reason why black people have lost land and have lost farms. And I guess the shortest way to explain it is that federal agency really operates on the local level. So in all of these small rural communities, primarily across the South, but also in the Midwest and the West, there are these local USDA offices run by local people. Most of the time, those people have been white. Many times, those people have also been farmers themselves. As they have received these federal funds, that are distributed so that they can educate farmers about the newest innovations and the newest technologies and and offer support, but also loan them money. These local agents in all of these rural communities have really used those federal funds as their own private funds. And they have been the people to determine who gets loans, whose farms are, you know, who, who's able to buy land. And so starting in about 1920 on through today, when a black farmer walks into his local USDA office and applies for a, an operating loan, right? And that's just part of farming. I think that's important to say too. This is, there's no stigma attached to having to take out a loan. That's just the way farming operates. You take out a loan at the beginning of the season, you use it to buy your seed and your fertilizer and all these kind of things. And then when your crop comes in in the fall, hopefully you've made enough money and you pay the loan back and then you start again. That's just the cycle. But for black farmers, when they went to their local agencies, the local farm USDA agent would tear up their loan applications. Or if they were processed, they would Um, often deny their loan applications or they would delay their loan applications. And what this means is that when the new year rolls around and it's January and February and people are getting back out into their fields and, and, you know, getting their fields ready for planting, 
they're buying seed, they're buying fertilizer. Well, if you don't have the operating funds to do that because you're still waiting for your local USDA officer to approve your loan or distribute the funds, you cannot engage in the practice of farming. And this is what happened to black people year after year, generation after generation. When that happens to a farmer and he's, he doesn't, for example, get his money that he's applied for, not in February, but he gets it in June. Well, in June, he's supposed to have planted his crop, right? And so that almost ensures that he will eventually fail. And not only his crop will fail, but he won't be able to repay the loan. And these local USDA agents understood what this cycle meant for these black farmers. And so when that would happen and the black farmer would, was unable to pay back the loan and couldn't restructure it year after year after year, these local USDA agents would then go in and they would seize that farmer's land because, of course, they had to put up collateral in the first place, right, to guarantee the loan. So when the, when the crop failed, they couldn't pay the loan back. Then the USDA goes in and they seize that farmer's house, his car, all of his assets, and his land. This was a systematic practice that happened to black farmers since the 1920s. And this is, this is the main reason why there has been this dramatic decline in black land ownership. The second issue has everything to do with heirs' property, but that, that's, a, that's a different issue. But the main reason is because of the USDA and the role that they have played. Yeah, and I know you, you, you write a bit about that second issue also, and it gets, it gets pretty complicated, but it also, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's also really eye-opening. I, I wonder, you know, like when you have a system that works in a way that disfavors some and favors others, like at some point, I've got to imagine people just start to say, I'm throwing my hands up, you know, like this is just, um, there are other ways that I can go into the world, that I can make a contribution, that I can make a living and support my family. Mm-hmm. And at some point it's just going to lead to a mass exodus. Well, and, and I do think that that happened. You know, I think um, when you talk about the great migration, right, that period right. from, you know, I think it was 1914 all the way up to ni- the early 70s. Right. Um, when people, black people left the South in droves, right? They were leaving because of violence and terror and, and theft, but they were also leaving because in many cases they were driven off of their farms, right? Or because they decided, you know what, this isn't worth it. It's not worth risking right. my family's life. And so they moved to metropolitan centers in the Northeast or the Midwest, or they came out West like my dad did. Yeah, people do give up, but you have to think about what they're leaving behind, right? And that is really, I think, when I think about what these projects have meant to me and why I wanted to write about this and explore these issues, it's because I started to think about what have Black people lost that we actually had, you know? What, what have we left behind? What have we been forced to turn our backs on in order to move forward and to progress? And in the case of farms and, and land ownership and land stewardship, there are all of these cascading issues about 
intergenerational wealth. And Black people, because they don't own land, they don't have that asset to pass on to future generations, right? So it just becomes this very, it's just an interesting and complicated constellation of questions and issues that tie into why, you know, why Black people, you know, why our community is the way it is today, right? It's very complicated, but it's rich and frustrating, <laughs> you know, yeah. but interesting as a storyteller. Right. And also, you know, like the notion that, yes, it affects individuals, it affects the families, and it's really the, the, you know, the familial history of so many people on an individual yeah. way. But then, like you said, when you zoom the lens out and look at the structure of society, when you look at issues of justice, of food systems, you know, yes. then you start to realize that, okay, inequity is at the level of individual farmers and families. They're not isolated. They're not like, you, you know, there's a, a sort of like a, a measurable, trackable effect when you look at the way that we've landed in the broader food system and inequity is sort of like that on a more systemic basis now. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's an exponential question, right? It starts with the individual. It starts with one farmer, one farmer's family. But if you multiply that over generations, if you think about whole communities of people, if you start to ask these other questions and make these connections between farming and knowing where your food comes from and food justice and food sovereignty, all of a sudden, all of these questions are interconnected. All of these questions are connected. And, you know, to see the way people are finally beginning to address these questions is what gives me hope. You know, people are finally, I think, beginning, and, and I, I, don't, I don't say like, I don't say this like I'm the first person who discovered this. I'm not. But I think that finally there is momentum behind these issues. And people who have been working in isolation in a relative sense are now, have now started to find each other and, and build these coalitions and collaborate together. And it's, it's exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's really powerful. Um, you know, the notion that these things that have happened on a local level affect like, the existence of food deserts, you know, like in, in major cities. And yeah. to see that people are sort of like are, are returning to the conversation and revisiting it is, I think it's powerful. I think, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're stepping into a moment, you know, in this context and also in a lot of broader contexts of inequity. Um, but to see that there's attention being given to this, I think is really, it, it's fascinating and, um, and, and hopefully hopeful. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. You also speak to a phenomenon that I think is really interesting, which is the phenomenon of people returning. Yes. You know, people where the families have left. Um, maybe the, there's no land left in the family anymore, and yet there's still something in a younger and sort of like a rising generation that's saying yeah. there's something here. There's the, I'm being called to do this at this point in life, it, which to me is is deeply fascinating on a lot of levels, but not the least of which is the fact that, you know, we're in a culture now that tends to exalt knowledge work. Yes. And then really kind of put down, look down on manual labor, working with your hands, working the land, working materials. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so I, it's fascinating to me to see this shift happening in the context of that larger set of assumptions. Definitely. That is really what I think is in many ways the most exciting because we have young people, young, black, indigenous, Latinx farmers, who, number one, I think, see their relationship to capitalism differently <laughs> and already are thinking about better ways to live and better ways to try to engage in the world. They're, they're really looking to build something new and different, which I appreciate. On top of that, 
they, like you said, I think there is such a push for what, what did you call it? Knowledge work. Yeah. And this is what I've seen so much. Like people are, are just looking and saying, if it's not something that comes like purely from your brain, if you're not a writer yes. or a coder or technology or a consultant, then it's the only reason you wouldn't do that is because you're quote, like not good enough or not smart exactly. enough. So you, which is to me, it's tragic. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, I really see that a lot in San Francisco. I mean, we're at ground zero for, you know, technology and innovation and everybody has their app that, well, this was pre COVID. Everybody had their app that they were developing and, you know, every, everything was about disruption. Right. And what I'm so encouraged by with these young people is they've all been to college. They all have degrees, right? They are applying their intellect and their expertise and their passion to create something new. And they do appreciate getting out there in the fresh air and being able to work the soil and be in community with each other and, and be entrepreneurial, right? So it's not even that it is, you know, some pie in the sky, you know, abstract vision that they have. They are bringing they are harnessing all of their intellectual resources, but they are determined to do things differently. And they are not waiting for anybody to grant them permission, right? That's what I appreciate. I appreciate their vision and their, their passion. I, 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 just, I just find them to be remarkable, you know? And I, I'm very inspired by the these young folks in their 20s and 30s who are, you know, they're saying, I don't need to have a certain kind of life, right? There is value in doing it another way. That's what I love. Yeah, it's, it, it is so fascinating to see that. And, and the notion that there is value in physically working something, whether it's land, whether yes. it's creative objects, whether it's building something. Like, I think it's fascinating. And in this particular context, they're also, I'm curious whether you feel this way, but from the outside looking in, it feels like, yes, this is a return to, to ownership, to working. But at the same time, it feels like there's also, there, there is a resistance and, and activist element to it, even though totally. that may not be overtly, you know, like what's, what, what is the quote, the mission? It feels like that is a, that's a part of the energy of it. Definitely. They are approaching agriculture and farming often through the lens of activism. They're asking themselves, how can I have agency, right, in ways that are significant, that will impact not just me, not just my family, but my whole community? How can I change things up, right? And again, that is what I just so appreciate and, and, and am inspired by. And, you know, I think about the conversation that I had with my editor at HarperCollins, Tracy Sherrod and, and her team, when we were deciding about book covers, for example. And it really came down to two. They either wanted to have an archival photo that I had supplied them, right? An old black, it was a beautiful black and white photo. And it's in the book. Um, it's a beautiful black and white kind of sepia tone photo of a younger black man standing on a platform, being pulled by a mule, right? 
and the, it's a massive sky and he's kind of, you know, this smaller figure. You can make out what it is, but he's a smaller figure. The photograph is visually stunning, but it tells a different story, right? And the other alternative was the photo that they chose, the photo of Leah and Naima Pennyman of Soul Fire Farm, two black women in their, you know, mid thirties with their farm implements on their shoulders, looking fierce and dynamic, but they're young and unapologetic. And when I had the choice between those two photographs, I told my editor, I want to go with, with the Pennyman sisters. I want to go with Soul Fire Farm because that says to anybody who's going to walk past this book, you don't know what this story is, mm-hmm. right? The, the other photo, people could walk past it and say, oh, I know what that book is going to be about. This story said, maybe you don't know. It also said, this is today and this is looking forward. And that's what I wanted to convey in this book is we are going to explore the history. We are going to be looking over our shoulders at the past, but we are also going to be looking at where we, we're going to be looking at where we are rooted now. And we are also going to be looking forward. And so I think that that cover suggests all of that. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's because I was inspired. Yeah. And I'm looking at the image right now. It's a fantastic image. And so you tell the story in the book, share a bit more about their story because it's really powerful. So when I was thinking about this book and kind of what I thought it might be, the very first people I reached out to were Leah and Naima Penniman. I found Leah's book, Farming While Black, which is really a gorgeous, but very practical how-to manual on farming. Everything from, this is what you have to think about when you're looking for land. This is what you have to think about when you're looking for soil. I mean, it is a real practical guide in addition to its own kind of celebration of, you know, ancestors and being connected to this larger story. So I wrote to Leah and I asked, I told her what I thought the book was going to be about. And I asked if I could come and interview her. And so I ended up spending a day on a day at Soulfire Farm there in Petersburg, New York, and uh, right outside of Albany. And it was transformative for me because here were uh, Leah and her husband, Jonah, uh, Vitaly Wolf, and they had raised their kids on this, you know, they had cleared the land themselves, their 80 mm. acres. They built their own house from straw and hay bales and plaster. It's beautiful. Jonah, Leah's husband is an architect, but they were pursuing a vision for what could be. And they founded Soul Fire Farm with the idea of this being a place for BIPOC farmers to come, uh, to be in community, but also to learn about farming with these traditional indigenous agriculture practices, because their farm is all organic. And they really were practicing all of these methods that, you know, now when you think about, when you hear words like sustainable agriculture and carbon sequestration and regenerative agriculture, right? Those are new terms for old practices. And that is what Leah and Naima and Jonah and the rest of the Soulfire Farm 
family, that's what they were doing on this land. And I was so blown away by my visit that uh, that really sent me down the rabbit hole of talking to more and more farmers all around the country, young people and old, older, about their experiences. But they were the very first farmers I reached out to. And uh, it's just been a joy to see them, you know, explode. They are really the, the, in many ways, the poster kids, young young people for this new movement, this of the, the returning generation. Yeah. I mean, it's really powerful to see what they've built. And, and like you described, you know, they're building this incredible actual farming operation, you know, that, that is biodynamic and sustainably oriented and, and all the buzzwords from today. Which, yes. and, and I love the frame that, that you, you brought to this, which is like, this is also known as what farmers had been doing for generations. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but exactly. now there's like sex, sexy turns attached to them and you know, and granted, yes, there's a there's a whole part of farming that operates in a very different way, but it's sort of like small, local, like you know, reverent of the land, reverent of the farm, in in very similar ways to indigenous people in this country have been for for generations and generations and generations too. And the other thing that really struck me about what they've created is it's also it feels like you know it's this powerful educational experience where they work with the community, they work with. Um, young farmers in the BIPOC community. Um, and there's there's this notion that they describe as programs that helped, you know, contribute to reparations and uprooting racism within the context of farming. So it's bringing people into community, but also having the bigger conversations, but under the context of this sort of like one particular domain, which I would imagine really changes the way that you step into the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. The framework that they have built, again, all through the lens of activism, right? And I, and I think I was talking to them. They have trained something like, I think 10,000 people have wow. been through their, have, you know, in, in some form or fashion, yeah. have passed through the doors of Soul Fire Farms since they, since they began. That's uh, they, have, they have trained something like 600 new farmers. I mean, it's amazing, yeah. right? But they're bringing in the community and... It's what I so appreciate, Jonathan, is it's, you're right, it is a way to actually put these ideas into practice, right? And once you kind of have that experience for yourself, kind of in your body, then you can go out and replicate that time and time and time and again and, and pass that knowledge on. And, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, so powerful. Um, yeah, the, um, you mentioned earlier also, there's, there's a sense of, of lineage and while you know, some people ended up absolutely like leaving the land behind, moving to major cities completely. And, and now there are generations that are disconnected from it. You know, you also share stories of, of certain instances where people have stayed with it. People have, they've really, they've fought a lot of battles um, and they have, they have been able to keep their land, to keep farming. And then there's a younger generation, there's a generation of kids or young adults in their twenties and thirties who may well have thought, you know, like, I'm kind of like, I'm tapping out as soon as I can. This is, mm-hmm. this is not my future. And then interestingly are starting to realize, well, maybe it is. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I think about so many of the farmers who I talk to, who you're right, have managed to hold on, right. Who are second, third, fourth, fifth generation farmers and are on the same land that they're great grandfather was on and are farming that land and and really bring to it an awareness 
of their role in a larger story, right? So I, I think about the Nelsons in Sondheimer, Louisiana. I think about the Bluferts in uh, Neesmith, North Carolina. These are two farming families where the sons in both cases, four sons in one case and, and three sons in, in another case, they farm with their dad. And they are out there passing along. Now, they, they are larger farmers. They are farming more commodity crops. But again, they have that awareness that they are part of a bigger conversation and they have the expertise and they have the passion, you know, and they are determined to hold on in the face of, of often insurmountable odds, but they're making it work, you know, and, and I just, again, I just so appreciate all of these people and um, the commitment that they all have. It's very inspiring. Yeah, you. Um, one of the other families that you you write about, and the, the story that you share is, is uh, the Armstrongs. Oh uh, yeah, Harper and Ashley Armstrong, which I thought I thought was a really powerful story. Also, it, and part of it is that I think so often we also have like there like there's this long standing narrative of of who a farmer is and isn't. Yeah. And yes, yes, a lot of that narrative is, well, they're white, but a lot of that narrative is, is also, and they're male. Yes. And so it's really interesting to see that, you know, like there is this heritage, there's a lineage being passed on in that family. And that's actually not where the land is going or where the future of the farm is. Mm-hmm. I'd love you to share a bit more about, about their story. Sure. So Ashley and Harper Armstrong are a father-daughter farming team in Louisiana, and their story was interesting to me because Harper Armstrong, the dad, he himself is a, I think, a third generation farmer. So Ashley is generation number four. And they almost lost their farm, actually, because of some of the practices that I've, you know, that we talked about earlier. But they managed to hold on to their land. And Ashley, being a, a millennial, I think Ashley is probably now. 30. I think she's about 30 now. They totally reinvented themselves and went from, you know, large scale commodity farming to organic farming of produce. And Ashley knows how to drive every single piece of equipment on that farm. She's an only child. She and her dad pal around together. And it's just a beautiful story of a daughter, a woman, recognizing her agency and the role that she could play in her family's lineage and carrying on that tradition. And Ashley, actually, when they were kind of reconfiguring their farm and thinking about what they wanted to do, it was Ashley who actually introduced uh, technology. And, you know, she advertises on Facebook and that's how they get their customers. And, you know, she lets people know where she's going to be. And people drive in from as far as Texas, I think she told me, to get their produce. And it's all because she was of a younger generation and was able to use technology, in this case, to advertise what she and her dad were growing. And she's just, they're both just wonderful, welcoming, genuine people on top of it. So it was lovely to tell their story. Yeah. It sounds like also, um, I guess Ashley 
originally didn't think that this would be what she would do. She kind of that's felt true. like I want to go out into the world and there's something bigger out there that's calling me. Yeah. Um, and in fact, started to do that and then came back. And I, I thought it was really touching, you know, like sort of this realization that within the experience of farming and, and like working with her dad in, in small community, that all of these big things that she thought she, that she would have to go out into the world and find and experience, you know, she was actually able to really find in this sort of like, I don't want to say simpler life of farming because I really don't think farming is simple, right. but in, in, she was able to find in, in the life of farming. Um, yeah. And it sounded like that was, that was almost surprising to her, but also deeply fulfilling. I think so. I mean, you know, and I could relate to that. I think, you know, when you grow up in a place, you often don't appreciate what that place can mean, right? Until you go out into the world or have the kind of realization that, that Ashley had, that, you know, she could experience so much of the world and live her life and answer these questions, and but she could do it right there with her dad. And, you know, I also think Ashley feels a tremendous sense of loyalty as an only child, you know, to help out her family. But it was interesting being with them because Harper, Mr. Armstrong, is so proud of her and really is, as you know, as a, as a father, uh, someone who could easily retire, you know, I, he really derives so much pleasure from working with his daughter every day. They're a really great team. And again, just such a pleasure and an honor to, to talk to them and hear their story and have them drive us out you know, to their fields. And Ashley knows as much, if not more than her dad does. And, you know, just great stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the, to do that with your kid and like as a kid to do that with your dad and to be able to yeah. do it for years and years, um, I have to imagine it's got to be not just rewarding work, but also just to, to have that quality, that level of relationship that you're both so invested in co-creating yeah. something and navigating it together and and fully capable of doing every part of it. Yeah. You know, it's got to be super powerful. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You know, one of the other things that occurs to me is that, as you mentioned, you know, like there are farms of all different sizes and all different levels, and some are much more oriented around these like massive consumer or commercial crops. And then some of them, you know, like are more produce focused or smaller. And um, you share another story, um, uh, Stanley Hughes, who I guess is in his mm-hmm. early 70s at mm-hmm. this point has a century farm, which means it's been going for literally over a hundred years at this point and, and has had all the struggles that you've described um, and, and sustained and sort of, but also made this really fascinating shift that I was curious about from being more of a commodity based farm mm-hmm. tobacco. And then over the generations, um, you know, becoming a certified farm and then focusing more on produce and serving the local community in a way where you can see the faces of the people who are enjoying what you created. And that really struck me because I feel like that is not the case in so many of the ways that people choose to work these days. Mm. And, and making that choice had to have been like a really interesting process for them and also to, to land in a place where you have that level of, of conversation and contribution and you can see the impact in people's eyes. It's got to be so powerful. Yeah. Well, Stanley and his wife, Linda Leach, are just, uh, Linda is a dynamo, you know? Hmm. I mean, uh, she is vibrant and vivacious and a real fighter and was so enraged by, you know, witnessing what had happened with Stanley, I think probably in the early years of their marriage and just watching him lose some of his land because he did lose part of his mother's land that had been passed on to him. But you're right. With Linda's help, Stanley, they have re completely uh, pivoted and are now really well-known in North Carolina for a lot of their organic vegetables. Their land has always been organic, which I also thought was amazing. You know, for over a hundred years, they have always been organic. What does that mean, really? It means that they've never used chemicals, probably, you know, in the early days because they couldn't afford them, right? Hmm. When that was the latest technological innovation, Stanley, part of his story was about how his father would farm and fertilize the ground with fish because that's the way the Native American, the indigenous people, that's where he learned that practice, right? Nobody thought of that in the 1920s. Nobody thought of that as a, as a new, you know, technology. That's an old practice, right? That has become new again. And just thinking about 
the reputation that they have now in their community and so highly regarded and well-respected and are known for their sweet potatoes in particular. And I mean, that's what, you know, again, that's what I find so inspiring about so many of these stories is these farmers' resilience and their perseverance and their deep, deep and abiding connection to the land and understanding kind of the role that they play. And I'm just inspired by these stories. Yeah, it's really powerful. I mean, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about has, has been you know, like around this deep connection to the land and um, on, on, a, on, on an equity and justice side, you know, the word ownership comes up often um, you know, in no small part because ownership has been stripped by all sorts of means. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this one other word that came up in an interesting way when, when you shared the story of Melanie Edwards um, and the word is stewardship. Yeah. You know, and, and it feels like that is, you know, it, it's something, it's, it's a notion that comes more out of um, indigenous communities here where, the, where the, the idea of a human being or a community actually claiming ownership to a land is, is almost this, this bizarre foreign notion. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that was an interesting, because there's a tension there, right? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about black farmers and we talk about you know, being dispossessed for generations and understanding what land ownership means for a family, if you're able to pass that down, but also having to acknowledge that, you know, we're all on stolen land, right? If we, if we really are honest about who were the original people here and the fact that they did have the indigenous people, Native Americans in this country had a different way of thinking about the land. And it was not about ownership at all. It was about we are here on this earth to take care of and protect and honor these spaces. And there's no way we can own it. But our job is to be stewards of this land and to take care of it. And I think what is interesting and encouraging to me now is we are seeing ways that both of these things can be true, right? We're seeing African-American black farmers talking about land ownership, but they're also talking about land stewardship. And people are thinking about different ways even to hold land, right? And kind of reframing this idea of what it means to own it, right? and be able to pass that along, but also look out for communities and understand that none of us are going to be here forever. And at the end of the day, our obligation is to take care of the soil and to take care of this land so that we can preserve it for the next generation. That's the most important thing. Yeah. And it it is a really interesting tension, right? Um, Because on the one hand, you see and acknowledge and like so much injustice and so much loss in the past and any sense for like, there's gotta be a way to make this quote, right. Yeah. And you know, like one of the things that comes to mind is well, well, let's, let's talk about ownership. Let's talk about giving back. Let's talk about how can we actually um, right the wrong. And at the same time, the, the larger notion that in the broader context, when we go back many generations before there were people here before all of us and, and their notion of what it meant to be on the land was actually very, very different than any yes. of our notions. So, yeah, I, I would imagine that sort of trying to navigate that, there's a lot of tension, but also um, 
it feels like there's a certain amount of relatability and grace that that enters that conversation as well. And it sounds like, you know, what you're sharing is that people are, are having these conversations in a way where it's sort of like, not necessarily of this or that, but like, can we yes end this? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why I, I really uh, feel so much hope hmm. about this new conversation. And, and especially with, again, this returning generation and these young people who are, they're just, they're engaging with these questions differently, right? They're trying to build, they're just trying to build a, a better model, something that's going to be sustainable, something that's going to work for more people, you know? And, and, and that is uh, what I am so encouraged by, uh, is their willingness to not just duplicate the same old systems, right? But to be entrepreneurial and to but also to think about their communities and, and how to have everybody participate and benefit, but in concrete and tangible ways. You know, I don't want to make it seem like this is so abstract right, that yeah. it's not practical. It's they're being very pragmatic and very practical about it, but they're just somehow doing it differently. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. As I was reading some of the history and some of the stories, something popped into my head and that was um, a recent piece that I read. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember where I saw, but it was a deep dive into the sort of the, the highly disruptive side of farming right now, yeah. apparently is this notion of super high tech hydroponic, you know, building mm. these massive several football fields, large of enclosed, completely climate controlled environments where you can literally grow crop in water, like minerally um, enhanced water under yeah. ideal conditions, 24 hours a day and 12 you know, months a year. And as I, I, I was thinking about that, I was, uh, as I was reading these stories of black people returning to the farming life, and I was wondering, this weird analogy popped into my head. I'm, I'm curious how it lands with you, which is as we see the legalization of cannabis in this country, mm-hmm. And so much injustice. And, and as people are, are trying to reimagine, how do we actually create laws to reintroduce this crop in a way that actually helps create more equity, that helps actually speak to some of the injustices in the past? I had this weird association, which is as this sort of like high speed, high tech, fully controlled, quote, future of farming is yeah. coming in. And as black people are returning to farming, like, is there going to be a similar conversation around involvement there in sort of like in this kind of next generation of farming? And I wonder if that's already happening. Well, I mean, the, the honest answer is I, I don't personally know, but I would think so. These young folks are really savvy, right? Because I was thinking the same thing too, to be honest. Hmm. I was thinking of it in a slightly different way. I was thinking of it in terms of like, Okay, there are real issues around climate change, right? Yep. And what is going to even be farmland, right? What's going to be viable farmland yeah. 50 years from now? Is it going to be in the South? Will the South, I don't know, right? I sense that there is an awareness, right, of all of these issues and questions. And so while, while, Black farmers are focused on the physical land, right? And many are leaving urban centers and they're going back to places like North Carolina and, you know, Louisiana and everything. I would have to think that these same people are also 
looking ahead to what is next? And how are they going to continue to participate in this larger, you know, thing we call agriculture, right? I can't think of an example offhand, so I don't have any anecdotal evidence, but I know the way these conversations are happening. And when people are talking about food sovereignty and food justice and all of these questions, and they're looking at ways to make sure that people of color are involved and engaged, I would have to think that somewhere in that conversation is people are thinking about what is the next iteration of farming, right? And how can we continue to ensure that there is equity and that black and brown people do continue to participate? Now, what I also thought when I saw that article was, wow, this looks a lot like Amazon. And wouldn't that be scary, <laughs> you know, if they're employing farmers 24 hours a day to work in these kind of artificial farms? So I, honestly, I don't, ha- I don't know that to be true, but I would have to think that people are looking to the future and some young folks someplace are going to make sure that black and brown people continue to be involved in this, whatever comes next, I have to think. Yeah. I mean, um, I would certainly hope so. Um, And it makes sense because so much of what you describe is already happening in this space is so progressive and so future oriented, so future minded that I would imagine like if this is part of the future, then thinking about how you participate that has got to be at least somewhere in the conversation. Um, you know, in this recent book, so in, in, in We Are Each Other's Harvest, you tell so many incredible stories. There's really powerful history. I learned so much. It was really moving and eye-opening. You also made an interesting decision as a writer, and that was woven throughout all of these stories. There are some excerpts from um, your fictional work, which which originally like led to this from Queen Sugar, and then also some some conversations, like a chapter where there's this really deep dive conversation with uh, uh, Lolita Tademi and uh, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another really interesting conversation um, about what the writer's room for Queen Sugar looked and yeah. felt like, um, which which eventually you know, like became this uh, you know, a TV show with uh, Ava DuVernay. And... I was curious, zooming the lens out, um, as a writer, you know, like when you're thinking how I'm putting together this book and, and this, this is kind of like, these are the stories that I want to tell. And, and these are the ideas that I want to be in here. I was curious what your thoughts were as a writer about bringing those specific conversations into the bigger narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I really want, because this whole issue of farming and black people's connection to the land and both historically and also looking forward. It's so large. And I knew that I'm not a historian, right? That is not my role. I appreciate history, but I am not the person who is going to be in, you know, combing through the archives, looking for that, those, you know, original documents and then telling a nonfiction story out of those documents. So my, I really wanted to situate myself as a curator. I think of this book almost like a kaleidoscope, right? 
And it is all, or, or, or a chorus of voices telling this big story. And so I also knew what inspired me. I, as a writer, I'm not only, I am inspired by other novels, absolutely, but I'm also inspired by poetry. I'm also inspired by photography. I'm also inspired by film and music. And just as a creative person, I draw inspiration from all of these other disciplines. And so I thought that in order for this to be a dynamic reading experience for a reader who happens to pick up this book, I, again, wanted to give them something that they didn't necessarily expect, right? As they sat down to learn this, this story about Black people and their connection to the land. And so I wanted there to be all of these other elements. So there is poetry in this book um, from some of you know, the, the best American, Black American poets, Elizabeth Alexander and Ross Gay and Kevin Young and Robin Cost Lewis or Lucille Clifton or Robert Hayden, people who aren't necessarily writing about farming, some were, but, but who are writing about the land or about food, right? I wanted to bring in culinary historians like Michael Twitty, who has his own uh, experience and, and kind of expertise about the long story of Black people and food and you know, the seeds that, that came across on those slave ships and what that means to Black people, because that's all part of this larger question. I wanted there to be photographs and portraits in the book so that you can see these farmers for, them, for yourself, right? I wanted there to be articles that I came across, like the, the one about the heirs' property, right? So that people could have this kind of multidisciplinary experience of this story I was trying to tell. And I knew that if I was inspired by so many different disciplines, I just hoped that I could somehow pull all of these kinds of things into the book and have this be a dynamic experience for the reader. And, and really that's, that's just what I was trying to do was kind of follow my gut, you know? Yeah. And, um, it landed, at least for me, I was so drawn in. Um, and, and I, th I think as you, as you mentioned, it was unexpected, you know, like yes. to sort of like have these moments of, of poetry and then like these deep dives into, um, history and then these like really rich conversations from writers and then, yes. and, uh, it, yeah, it, it made it, um, I didn't necessarily see what was coming in the best good. of ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's what I Yeah. Did. Yeah. I really loved it. Um, feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So sitting here in this uh, container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Oh, boy. Oh, to live a good life. Um, first of all, to be healthy. To be at peace. I think I have a... a <laughs> a new appreciation for, you know, to be able to just move through your days with a, a sense of wonder and curiosity. That to me is a good life, you know, to have somehow, some way 
an opportunity to be a student of life and to be able to ask questions and seek answers and to always be learning. So yeah, that's what a good life is for me. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, safe bet you'll also love the conversation we had with Michelle Harper, the author of New York Times bestseller, The Beauty of Breaking. You'll find a link to Michelle's episode in the show notes. Even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download it so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode. And then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.